Welcome to Swift Unscripted. These Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. Today, we are recording from our SWIFT satellite office at the University of New Hampshire's National Center on Inclusive Education. And we are interviewing a Dr. Joanne Malloy. Joanne is a cl- clinical assistant professor at the Institute on Disability at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, last year, Joanne received a couple of awards. One was the Rockstar Award from SAMHSA for her work with youth. And another one was um, from the New Hampshire Children's Behavioral Health Providers as the Professional of the Year. Um, this award-winning rock star, Joanne, <laughs> has a lot to, to teach us about supporting students with labels of emotional and challenging behaviors in their neighborhood school and in regular classrooms. So we are thrilled to have her here today. Uh, Joanne's developed and implemented a a lot of projects, uh, nationally recognized evidence-based projects on best practices to support students with emotional and behavioral challenges in their their neighborhood school and regular classrooms, um, and has done a lot of work on PBIS, Positive Behavior Intervention and Supports, Wraparound Services, uh, Dropout Prevention, uh, and right now is spending a lot of time thinking about and figuring out how to best implement practices in trauma-informed care. So welcome, Joanne. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> to get us started, Joanne, could you just give us a brief definition of, first of all, positive behavior intervention and supports, and then trauma-informed care, and, and how the two fit together? So, um Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports is actually a framework that grew and was developed by people who worked with children and youth in segregated settings who had significant behavioral problems, including self-injurious injurious behavior, uh, kids who were um, uh, had communication disorders and expressed them and in harmful ways and unsafe ways. And, and all of that, those folks, including George Sugai and Rob Horner and Lucille Eber, realized that those children could be and should be included in uh, classrooms at the same time that we realized that those were inhumane ways of treating those children and youth because uh, their their behaviors really came from internal communication issues, frustration, as well as um, environmental issues that they had no control over, including abuse, neglect, and so forth. And so the whole idea behind positive behavior interventions and supports is, is creating a different environment where the child can be successful as, to po- as opposed to a control environment, which is what um, kind of those punishment negative settings are all about. It's all about control. So when you say different environment, are you talking about the general education classroom? Yes, absolutely, as well as positive skill building and reinforcement for positive skills because for many of these children uh, they need 
to express their communication uh, frustrations. They need to express their displeasure, and but they need to learn different ways to express those. And nobody's teaching them how to express those uh, uh, frustrations, or and nobody's teaching them those pro-social skills unless it's someone in the environment who does it. Yeah. So it is in the general ed classroom. Uh, it is sometimes with support in addition to the general ed classroom. It's all based now on brain research that we're, is so exciting uh, and emerging that shows us the actual changes in the brain of, of children who learn these new skills and are reinforced for these skills. So um, PBIS is, is however, um, a multi-tiered framework based on the public health model that has shown to be very effective in changing practice in the general ed setting and in the additional settings that children uh, may learn new skills in. So community, home, family, right. other parts of the school. Right, right. Um, and you mentioned uh, that PBIS, and we'll use that, Acronym, yeah. yeah acronym. Thank <laughs> you, Joanne. Yeah, we'll use that going forward, um, PBIS. Uh, you mentioned that it's part of a, the MTSS model, multi-tiered systems of supports. And as you know, that MTSS is, uh, is one of the key domains within the SWIFT framework. So right. thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, it's very consistent with the Swiss, uh, SWIFT framework. Yeah. So. Um, so trauma-informed care... Yes, let's get to that. Yeah, it fits in very nicely because um, we now know that a good 75% uh, of youth who drop out of school have histories of trauma, that there's a high correlation between uh, children and youth who exhibit behavior problems and, and histories of trauma, um, can, and sustained uh, toxic stress can really impair a child's ability to learn. Uh, their, their brains look different under brain scans than children who grow up under typical circumstances. Um, so, But we also know the resiliency research shows us that those children can learn new skills, can recover. Uh, some kids recover more quickly than others. Um, but a trauma-informed environment is one that understands what trauma does to children and uh, does not engage in re-traumatizing practices like um, seclusion or restraint is re-traumatizing for children, only makes their trauma experience worth worse, and it also really adversely affects the child's relationship with the people around them. Um, and so trauma-informed is, is simply that everyone in the school at all levels understands the signs of a child who may be, have experienced trauma. Uh, Tell, what, what might some of those signs be? Well, overreaction to what would be normal stimuli for you or I. So we're in class and the teacher asks for our homework. Most kids would respond, you know, like, I don't have it, or I have it, here it is. But you might find a child who's been um, exposed to a lot of uh, toxic stress might go, F you, you're not getting my effing homework, right? Overreaction. Mm -hmm. You might see a child shut down emotionally and um, uh, mentally, uh, again, under what might seem typical uh, circumstances, really shut down, unable to respond. Um, you also may see children overreact and be overly aggressive. Um, so saying something like, hey, I like it, the, the lunch you have today, and the, the child just being really rude in response and not knowing how to really respond to people. 
And also uh, distrustful of people is huge because typically a lot of kids who have been exposed to ongoing toxic stress have learned that the adults don't protect them, the adults won't protect them, and so they learn to distrust people. And so you might see a real difficulty in forming a normal teacher-student relationship. The teachers have to work extra hard to form relationships with these kids. Oh, wow. It hurts my heart to um, hear you talk about these issues. It really does. So uh, let me just, like, think about this for a moment. What you're saying is that when teachers see behaviors that are considered challenging in the classroom, that rather than, uh, well, maybe in addition to providing some kind of consequence for that behavior, teachers or social workers or parents or whomever the school leaders are need to consider what kind of trauma a child has experienced and that that might actually be the reason for the behavior? Well, I think that in a PBIS school, and this is a beauty of that framework, a multi-tiered framework, the teacher should be consulting with people in the school about a child's behavior when it looks like that. They should be saying, you know, I asked Jack for his homework third time now, and he just was swearing and throwing his books around. So what's with that? You know, and beginning, we have some technologies like functional behavioral assessment where we can begin to drill down and find out the origins of the behavior. Um, A teacher doesn't need to know every child's, you know, history or background, but they need to to be able to reflect with colleagues about, you know, It's not that he's a bad child or anything like that, but his behavior is not right for the situation. And what can I do to ensure that these things don't continue to occur? Rather than just sending the child to the office, excluding the child, you know, certainly not berating a child in front of other kids. Um, And a lot of teachers don't have these tools. So in a good multi-tiered system of support, there are people they can confer with to develop some ways of interacting with the child, maybe to avoid that situation in the first place, and also uh, how to kind of build a trusting relationship with that child. So what might be the first piece of advice that you provide to a teacher who's feeling challenged by the the challenging behavior of a student or classroom or well, his classroom. Yeah, I think the first thing we do is ask a lot of questions like, when does it happen? Um, what did you do just before it happened? What did you do afterwards? Uh, what was the child's behavior? What did it look like? How often did it happen? Just get gathering information with the teacher. And then um, if the child is a child who's really um, got some challenges in terms of uh, trauma or uh, behavioral challenges, begin to reorder the environment. As I said before, a lot of it's about the environment. So. Um, letting the child uh, know ahead of time before class even starts what you're going to be doing, uh, what you're going to be asking of all the kids. Like, we're going to go into group halfway through the class. Which group would you like to be in? Those kind of things Mm -hmm. to build trust with each child. And And it sounds like giving children control. Giving them more control, giving them more choice, uh, not springing things on kids because a lot of times children who uh, have had trauma don't understand those uh, transitions as well as other their kids, and then conferring with, you know, the behavior experts in their school. Uh, some of it's trial and error, too, I would say. <laughs> you know, we're dealing well, with... Well, isn't it all, yeah. teaching? 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> teaching for sure, and then dealing with human beings. Right. What might work for one kid doesn't work for another. Right. But certainly avoiding the um, punitive aspect is really, really important because it just really um, harms your relationship with the child. And I, I am not a Pollyanna. I know some of these kids are really difficult to like, uh, to get close to. Um, so having that support network so you at least know, you know, I really don't like this kid, but I'm willing to give it a try because I think he should be able to do pretty well if we if we work together. So. Right, and if a, a child, a student, gets the sense that they're not liked. There's, oh, they'll know it. They'll know it, and they're, that is, yeah. Yeah, yeah children and youth who have been uh, exposed to a lot of toxic stress are very attuned to uh, the emotions of others because uh, they have their radar up. You know, they're looking, scanning the environment for danger all the time. So, you know, I, I think it's really interesting what you said about um, the effects of segregation and the potential for that to actually be trauma-inducing. Yeah. Can you just speak a little bit more about that? Well, because um, just as you know, I mean, there's so many students who are labeled with significant disabilities, yeah. um, significant cognitive, right. intellectual, developmental, behavioral, right. mental health challenges, um, who are who are oftentimes segregated from their tip, the typical education experience. So. Right. Talk about that for a moment. Well, the goal is to never get, um, never have a situation escalate to a point where, for safety reasons, you have to separate a child. You know, there are the occasional times, but in again, the beauty of a multi-tiered system of support or PBIS is you're thinking about prevention all the time. And so, if we know that a busy hallway at 8:30 in the morning is going to set Mary off, and she's going to start, you know. Hitting I don't other like kids. those busy hallways, no. that's for sure. Then we, then we let her come in either a little bit sooner or a little bit afterwards, you know, and she might have um, someone helping her through the hallways. So prevention is always the key because once a child and, and, and the adult with him or her uh, is out of control, it's over. There's nothing you can do until the event's over, and then you, have to, you might have to segregate the child for safety reasons. So um, schools have to have those kind of procedures in place. But long-term segregation is very, um, uh, it's, the child knows it. The child knows they're being segregated. They know they're being segregated because they can't control their own behavior. And we've talked to a lot of young people, and they often say to us, I just wish I could be like all the other kids, you know. Mm. Um, and we also, though, do hear of kids who say, you know, I did really well in this segregated school. So, I mean, it's unfortunate, that, but the goal is to have the typical school, the general ed classroom, be a place where all kids can be. And to segregate kids is harmful. Um, it doesn't teach them the, the skills they need as adults, how to get along with adults of all different types or, or peers. It really, um, so the goal is to teach the child the skills they need to be in the typical setting. Now, we're hearing a lot of language these days on um, supporting students, all students, including students with disabilities, to be on the path to career and college. Can you right. speak to that for a moment? Well, it doesn't do us all much good if, if all the kids uh, with disabilities don't have jobs or go to college when they leave school. Um, and as we know, for, for students with IEPs, it's required that the school begins to talk with them about what they're going to be doing post-high school. Um, 
but uh, we find that some of those, uh, the implementation of those rules is sometimes uh, not, not real genuine. So, um, but always thinking about, okay, you know, you're going to be out in the real world and your boss is going to tell you to, to do it right. And how are you going to react that first time, you know, and, and how are you going to make it in the work world um, is really, really important. The other, uh, the data shows that young people, students with disabilities who work during high school have a much greater um, uh, probability of working post high school. So job experiences while they're in high school are really, really important. Letting kids uh, pursue their passions while they're in high school are really important. And students with disabilities and students who quote, behave badly, unquote, should have exactly the same experiences that every other student has in that regard. Um, I often hear, because we do a lot of vocational work with high school students, well, you know, he can't go into a voc ed class because he, he hasn't gotten enough A's or B's or hasn't passed enough classes. And we often say, your, your vocational class is exactly what he needs, so how are we going to get him in your vocational class? So I think helping the youth to articulate their dream, their vision, even if they're a, a kid who's in foster care, who's been in jail, doesn't matter. We ha need to have those conversations with every single one of those students. And that, um, that gets at the work that you've done with Renew for the past... Right. How many how years, many years? Joanne? Is 20 this, years? Oh, my gosh, 20 yeah, years. 20 years. Since you initiated and have been implementing the evidence-based program <laughs> called Renew. Um, give us a quick description of that. Well, um, I'm actually... My background's in vocational services, and I, I remember the first time I ever got a job in vocational services... I realized how um, empowering getting a job and how good people felt about having a job and a paycheck and, and how important it is for all of us. So um, I helped develop Renew with colleagues here like Patty Cotton and you, Mary, and others, <laughs> uh, where we do person-centered planning with uh, young people who have emotional and behavioral challenges. Um, and, you know, it's funny, 20 years later, there's a lot of person-centered planning that goes on with, with kids with other disabilities, but it's still a rare occurrence that people are, are doing empowerment, youth empowerment, person-centered planning meetings with this population. Uh, youth who are at risk of dropping out, like I, as I was saying before, young people who are in the juvenile justice system, uh, they need to be having those conversations about their dreams and their um, talents and their skills and things they want to pursue. It can really be the difference between the youth making a choice oh, I'm going to go do drugs today versus, oh, I'm going to work, I can't do drugs today. And I think that really does, having a purpose in life is really important for everyone. So uh, our work in Renew is person-centered planning and then the, uh, is one of the primary elements of the model. And the second element of the model is developing social supports, natural supports, and paid supports around each youth. So if, we, if we're talking about adolescents with emotional and behavioral challenges, many of them don't have reciprocal positive relationships with helpers or people in school. They've often burned their bridges in school. Uh, so we have to rebuild those bridges with them, um, helping uh, teachers to come on board, helping parents to come on board, 
peers, um, people in the community to help the youth around specific objectives. Um, thank you for that great explanation of Renew. I've, I've seen it in action, and it's pretty impressive, the outcomes that we're Thanks, seeing for Mary. students who, who are supported through the Renew program. Um, you mentioned involving communities. So when you talk about trauma-informed care, I can't help that my mind goes to this place of, all right, a student's experienced some early trauma in their life. There, it results in challenging behaviors that present themselves in the school. Now, um, how do we best support that student? Mm -hmm. And I think about, well, what are the resources we need to support that student? And many of them might come from the community, community mental health right. systems, yeah. social workers, people yeah. to go in and support a family. Can you, am I on track with that? Absolutely. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. So a more recent iteration of the multi-tiered system of support is bringing in um, uh, clinically high-level uh, providers as well as natural supports at all three levels or tiers, uh, especially at tiers two and three. And so when you think of um, Renew, for instance, it's really a tier three intervention for high school students, which means it's for students who have significant issues related to school and community. And um, so, and one of the key features of a tier three intervention is it's individualized and there is a team, individual, individually constructed team for each kid. And can we also translate that to elementary and middle school? Absolutely. Okay. So at the elementary school and young middle schoolers, we're really promoting um, family-driven wraparound here in New Hampshire because uh, from the families I've worked with and seen, um, that's the only thing that's really going to work. Uh, typically, if you have a kid who's who's really not doing well in school, having a lot of behavior issues, um, and then the family member might be stressed, poor, you know, working several jobs, single parent, uh, new immigrant, whatever. Addiction. That, yeah, addiction, a parent being in jail themselves. The, the family-driven wraparound, it's really important to have that parent be part of the team as well as that parent be part of the change process as well. And it might not be the parent. It could be a grandparent or right. a, caregiver. a caregiver or foster yeah. family. Yeah. Exactly. And as well as other natural supporters and uh, formal supporters like a mental health therapist or a juvenile justice parole, a parole officer or a DCYF worker. And the, there's an individualized team because you want everyone in the team working in the same direction towards the same goals. And those goals are determined by the family and the child, mm -hmm. which is really different. Uh, people say, oh, yeah, we do wraparound. Well, uh, by the family and by the child, I'll just say that again, their dreams, their vision, their goals are primary. And so um, the, the therapist comes on board and the therapist starts to work towards helping Johnny stay a whole day in school without getting sent home, right? That might literally be the goal, you know. Or mom might say, my goal is for Johnny to be safe, you know, or for me to be safe at home with Johnny. So everyone's working on the family vision, and then the family's invested. And the family, you know, you see changes in the family because obviously a family gets to that point because there's something wrong, something not working in terms of that family. And so what you're saying is you provide that kind of support and you see more positive outcomes in yeah. school. Yeah, 
absolutely. It absolutely leads to. It should. Increased abs- educational academic outcomes. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. I've, I know we're running out of time here, and Joanne is, I feel like we're really, really lucky to have carved out this moment today. Thank but you. Uh, No, thank you. What I, I have two more questions. One is if you could um, speak for a moment about suspension and expulsion. Mm-hmm. I, I've been reading a lot of new research or a lot of new anecdotes. Uh, you know, there seems to be some a lot of attention focused on suspension and expulsion. Right. And then I want you to end with telling us some stories. Okay. <laughs> so um, there's great uh, studies uh, being that have been done by the civil right, U.S. Civil National Office of Civil Rights, I believe, or a civil rights project, um, where they the real danger with suspension and expulsion is, first of all, it's somewhat capricious. And although people will say, oh, we have our rules and our, our you know, our absolute rules and so forth, um, the zero tolerance kind of um, uh, uh, initiatives over the last 10 years, like with adults in prison, has resulted in kids going to jail for, uh, you know, kissing in the hallway. And I'm not kidding, you know, escalating that kind of an event to the point where the child is taken off in handcuffs. And, um, uh Events like I, I heard about a third grader who took off his shoe and threw it at the principal and, and got, it, got ended up being expelled. Right, right. So it's bled over. I mean, obviously, guns, contraband, sure. You have to get the child out of school for some period of time. For safety. Yeah. But it bleeds over into all these disputes that were really escalated by the adults in the situation when you look back at it. And the real the real travesty, of course, that we see in the civil rights literature is that African-American boys are suspended and expelled at um, three and a half times the rate of white boys, uh, Hispanic boys as well. Um, so there's, there's and, and they ha- actually have drilled down, they're expelled three and a half times more and suspended three and a half times more for the same offenses under the same circumstances. So it's not like their African-American boys are doing anything worse than right, white boys. Right, right, right. So uh, it, that's a real problem, and the uh, uh, office, the... Um, Attorney, uh, U.S. Attorneys General uh, um, Eric Holder, about a year and a half ago, along with uh, the Secretary of Education at the time, Arne Duncan, put out um, uh, guidance to schools. You're not going to be, you should not be doing this anymore, and you really shouldn't disaggregate your data according to race. The other thing is kids with disabilities, about two and a half times wow. the rate of suspensions wow. and expulsions. So um, that clearly is a civil rights issue that every school should be looking at because. Basically, what the attorneys general said is, "We'll sue you if we find that you're doing this." You know, so people should be on a, on guard about that. But um, also thinking about, are we suspending and uh, suspending kids for pretty relatively minor offenses? And once a child is suspended and goes home, and maybe they're not supervised, and maybe they, we've heard kids say this. It's in Dan's uh, Habib's films. I go home and drink. I invite my friends over, we smoke pot, we do video games all day. Woohoo! Great for me, right? So, what is suspension supposed to do? Um, deterrence are okay. Deterrence are okay, and uh, they do work. But for the highest need kids, they actually don't work. 
uh, it alienates the student more from the school and really doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. So uh, what the schools need to do, and again, PBIS and multi-tiered systems of support, is analyze those situations where um, students are escalating, their behavior is escalating to a point where they get suspended or expelled, and you can avoid uh, most of those incidents. Um, so you've brought us right back to the importance of implementing a PBIS model and having a focus on trauma-informed care and, right. and utilizing that multi-tiered system of support uh, in your schools. So I, I feel like we could probably schedule another <laughs> five podcast with you, Joanne, and okay. still not run out of really important things to talk about. But before we close this one, would you just share a story of a, a student that, yeah. you know, or a school-wide transformation effort that you've been a part of where you've really seen this this work in action and result in positive outcomes? So, uh, it, you know, I keep going back to the people in Summersworth who are featured in Education Revolution, which is one of Dan Habib's films. And, and for those of you listening, go ahead and look at it. Um, you know, at the time when we were working with the school, and working in schools is difficult as an outsider. You know, you want to be helpful to the school people. At the same time, you see areas they should make change. But they really did make tremendous change there. And their principal opened up her doors to Dan and said, go ahead and film. And he filmed good things and bad things happening there. But they made a real effort to uh, reverse their dropout rate. They had over a... Um, eight and a half percent dropout rate, annual dropout rate when we went in there. And by the time we left, it was under one percent. Wow. And, That's uh, impressive. Yeah, and I think the, the youth who did drop out really did, didn't want to go to school anymore, <laughs> genuinely. They really did a good job in trying to make it work for every student and uh, put into place the behavior systems, the behavioral technology that we have. You started to use data to make decisions, which is really important. Oh, that'll be a whole other podcast with you, Joanne. <laughs> Database decision-making. Right. Yeah. Everybody's favorite topic, yeah. although it is kind of interesting. It's very interesting. And, of course... And you actually make it interesting. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Mary. Well, Joanne, I just want to thank you for sharing your experience with us, with the SWIFT community today. And want to remind people to check out swiftschools.org and you'll find lots of resources to support your work in transforming education so that each and every student is welcomed and well supported in their neighborhood school and in general education classrooms. So I'd like to thank you for listening today. These podcasts, you can download them on iTunes. Uh, SWIFT is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs. Thank you for listening.